Welcome to Talkumentaries, where we'll discuss a different documentary each week. This week, we're discussing Growing Up Trans, the 2015 PBS Frontline episode that includes personal stories from children, parents, and doctors about the struggles and choices facing transgender children. It's currently streaming on PBS.org. This podcast will contain spoilers, so listen at your own risk. So, Growing Up Trans. Yeah. Last year, we had a Halloween party, and a family that we're friends with came, and we used to all go to martial arts with them, and the mother told me that another martial arts student that we used to go with had begun transitioning at age nine, and of course, my first reaction was, wow, how could you know at age nine that that's what you want to do, and so first, of course, it seemed strange, but... I'm really glad that I heard about this documentary and I had watched it uh, before we decided to talk about it because it really did help me understand, you know, this was not just a whim. This was not just Mm -hmm. a quick decision that this is something that the child and the parents had talked about and processed for a long, long time, probably her whole life before she made that decision. So it's interesting. What I liked about the documentary was that it allowed me to get a better picture of what life may be like for that family Mm -hmm. and understand that a little more clearly. How about you? So I kind of had a similar confusion about this topic before. I mean, I understood the idea of adults being transgender. Right. And I understood that you know, their right to decide how they want to identify and how they want to express that in terms of just clothing and pronouns or medical interventions, whatever it took. But the idea of children, even though the adults that I knew of as transgender and understood that they talked about that feeling occurring very early in childhood, to hear children voicing it now, for some reason, I, it just felt very strange to me. And it right. felt like, how can that be? And how could you possibly know that that early? But this documentary, I think, helped me understand how that would, ha- you know, occur to a child as young as, you know, toddlerhood, that they right. just don't feel like a boy, or they don't feel like a girl. And I, this is a, a documentary that I recommend to people whenever the debate around transgender comes up, whether it's um, how schools accommodate transgender children or the whole bathroom debate that erupted in North Carolina last year. Right. This is a documentary that I like to refer people to, not only because it helps them understand transgender and how it can occur, you know, so young, how it can begin to express itself so young, but also how I like the way this documentary doesn't just preach that line of thinking. It really is very honest about the trouble with particularly the medical interventions. Right. I feel like it's very honest and even handed with the fact that it's not just let kids be what they want to be. And, you know, it's, it's just very honest. Yeah. I mean, you could feel the pain of the parents going through this process. Mm -hmm. I think it was clear in most of the cases, you know, the parents, as they go through the process, it was such a struggle to, work with the medical community and work with the child to try to come to a good decision. Because like you said, once you start medical intervention, at least some of the processes, they're irreversible. 
And that's such a huge decision to make when you're so young, when you're younger than 16, to decide, will I ever want to have a child of my own? That sort of decision, it's really tough. And I I think that did come through really well on the screen. Mm -hmm. I do wish they had gone a little bit deeper and I know it's hard because this is a frontline episode and it's not like a longer documentary, but I do wish they'd gone a little bit deeper and maybe found adults who had wanted to transition at an early age. And maybe, for example, one adult who had wanted to but wasn't able to and is now transitioned and maybe let them talk mm-hmm. about what a difference that could have made in their lives. And yeah. then maybe another adult who had wanted to but then later changed his or her mind and mm-hmm. talked about what a difference that could have made in their life as well. This is obviously new territory when it comes to the, the mm-hmm. medical approach for younger children. None of these treatments that were talked about in the documentary are FDA approved, and they're done with obvious risks because there aren't any long-term studies. I, I thought it was an interesting and very helpful setup that one of the first children they feature in the episode is Leah, formerly mm-hmm. Liam, who was talking about becoming a girl. And she said, I wrote it down here. She said that she changed her name, her clothes, her mm-hmm. room, her pronouns. Right. And that was the four main things. And then the fifth thing was medicine and surgery. Yeah. You know, that would eventually have her looking more like a woman as she right. grew. And those first four things were so endearing because it was just like, that's the fun part. You know, that's like the the easy part. I mean, I'm sure it's not easy once you're going out into the world and trying to convince people to call you suddenly by a different name and use a Mm -hmm. different pronoun. But that's, I imagine if I were to change my identity, that's the stuff that I would really kind of be gleeful about. And many of them seem downright gleeful about approaching the medicine and eventually the surgery too. But there was, because, and, and I can understand that if you are approaching puberty and you feel very much a girl in every sense of the word, but you are in serious danger of getting hair in places that you didn't want and a Adam's apple. And once that starts to happen, that's the bell. You can't unring that bell. But then the blockers have their own set of, as you said, they're not very well researched. There's all kinds of um, risks you have to assume that come along with them. Right. And if once you're on the blockers, if you're not going through puberty at all, even though that's helpful to you to just kind of put it on pause for a bit, if everybody else around you is getting a deep voice or boobs, <laughs> yeah. how, how much teasing and hatefulness are they putting up with just for not going through puberty at all? Right. Yeah, and uh, they did bring in an older teen at the end who talked a little bit about that too, how he felt like he missed getting to know that natural part of himself, that awkward transitioning naturally kind of self. Uh, You know, Mm -hmm. he missed that experience in his life, and he wasn't really sure if that would be an issue later on, but he seemed a little regretful about it. So, yeah, so even if you make the right decision, whatever turns out to be the right decision for and with that child, there's still a certain amount of wistfulness that comes with it. Yeah. The documentary did specifically state that some children will change their mind. But, you know, part of the problem with this area right now is we don't have any numbers not only yeah well we and they they even went on to say not just that some children would change their minds that most would yeah 
And so how do you know if your six-year-old is the one who's going to still want to be a girl at at 16 and 26 and 56, right? or if this is something you, that will not even be on her radar when she's 10, Yeah, you know? Yeah. Like the one father said, it's, it's easy to change your name and things like that, but the hormones and mm-hmm. you know, the puberty blockers and then taking hormones, those mm-hmm. are irreversible. And you know, some of the effects are irreversible. So, yeah. I mean, that is a huge decision. Mm-hmm. And it occurs to me that the research prospects for this are n- are not good. I mean, everybody involved said we need more research on this to know what the puberty blocker does in the long term yeah. and to know how to tell who's going to really want this their whole lives and who's just going through a phase. Right. And so everybody was saying there needs to be more research. And I feel like scientific research in general is sort of in peril yeah. right now. And particularly on this topic, I don't see anybody, you know, opening up the coffers to fully fund this anytime soon. So I I don't know what I would do if I had a child approaching puberty with this issue Mm -hmm. right now. Yeah, Um, well, I mean, the children taking these steps really are the lab right now. They are the experiment, basically. mm -hmm. And I think they know that going in, but the studies have started because they've started using these drugs, not that they could experiment. It just hasn't been done before. Right. You know, so long term, especially, it'll be interesting to see what side effects there are. You know, hormones are so powerful. They control so much of our bodies, and especially the testosterone and estrogen hormones. They do so much more than just, you know, help with body hair and you know, sex organs, you know, they control so much more of our bodies than we know, really. Um, Yeah. I noticed too, that all of the children featured in this seemed to live in very upper middle class neighborhoods, right? And have educated parents and, you know, seem to have a a lot of advantages (laughs) working in their favor. So if this is, you know, a naturally occurring phenomenon, and not something that people just make up out of thin air, then it's happening to children who live in poorer neighborhoods who have less educated parents who, you know, I'm wondering how different is that experience for them, if you Mm -hmm. don't have parents who are receptive to it, if you don't have access to healthcare for even basic things, let alone experimental things. Yeah, because some of the medical treatment that was mentioned in the documentary, the price tag associated with the ongoing hormone treatments were $20,000 and up. So they did say there were cheaper options. Mm -hmm. The ongoing counseling associated, I mean, just all of the associated costs, I'm sure would be prohibitive for some families. It's pretty Mm -hmm. expensive. So it occurred to me too, how hot on the heels all of this discussion is on the sort of larger acceptance of sexuality of differences Mm -hmm. in sexuality Mm -hmm. that just a generation ago to be gay or be lesbian was very taboo and very much in secret and just in a relatively short amount of time we've seen you know where most americans agree that people should be able to get married to whomever they want so there's been really rapid progress Mm -hmm. there I mean, obviously not everybody's on board. (laughs) It's a continuing fight, but there's been a huge shift. So hot on the heels of that, we've now got a discussion of transgender issue. And I think there's some parallels between the two because I think there are people 
certainly people of older generations who think, well, I didn't know any transgender kids when I was little. So this is a this is something new that people just made up. Well, you probably didn't know any gay kids when you were little either, because nobody was out about it. Right. And so even if they grew up to come out and have a totally different life than you expected for them, they were gay the whole time. Right. And so these trans kids were trans the whole time. And it makes me wonder how many kids I went to school with were in secret turmoil because they felt like their body didn't belong to them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. You know, several of my friends <laughs> that I was good friends with in high school now identify as gay. And, you know, I think about how sad they probably were in high school. They didn't have any support because they probably couldn't feel like they could be themselves. And they seem right. a lot happier now. Right. As far as sexuality, you know, there are so many different variations now. And yes. I think that's important, too, because especially when we're looking at children less than 16, some people in their adult lives are happy to dress as a woman and still be a man and even be yeah. married to a woman. You know, I know someone like that who just loves to dress up. We can't look at him and think, well, you should be taking hormones. He doesn't want any part of that. Right. But on the other hand, some of these children that were in the documentary obviously felt that they could not be happy living mm -hmm. as the sex they were born in, you know, even right. talks of suicide and self-harm. So, you know, as a parent, you know, if, if a child says that, you know, I think that definitely should be taken seriously. But you've got everything in between there, you know. I, I'm glad that counseling is such a big part of this process because mm -hmm. otherwise I think there would be a lot more regret in the future. Right. That is one of the parallels, I think, between sexuality and gender is that, you know, we're recognizing more and more that there's a spectrum on all of them, that there's not just gay and straight there's, you know, people who identify as bisexual. There are people who right. never identify as anything but straight and right. then lose their spouse for whatever reason. And right. then their next love affair is with the same sex. And so there's all different variations of it. And it's also very fluid. Um, you know, yeah. it can change. Yeah, the gender changes seem a little harder to roll back, you right. know, at least the medical ones. Mm hmm. The medical part of it. Yeah, definitely. The medical part, I think, is the sticker here. Because, you know, if it's irreversible, should that be done at a young age? I think that's the most controversial part here. Mm -hmm. One article that I read in preparing for this was a mother of a teenage girl. And the teenager was practicing gender fluidity. And she, mm -hmm. in the article that I read, mentioned that she wasn't sure day to day what her daughter wanted to be. And that was okay. And she viewed it more of, you know, my daughter is not part of the, the popular group in school. She kind of pushes against the whole dressing up and wearing makeup. And she's always been that way. And she felt like this was just her daughter's way of bucking the conventions of femininity. Mm -hmm. And she was okay mm -hmm. with that. She wasn't saying, I want to be a boy, really, but just didn't want to conform to the glossy magazine model look. And so she right. just felt like that was her teenage daughter's way of saying, look, I just want to be myself and I don't want to get hung yeah. up on looks and male mm -hmm. and female. I just want to 
to be me and go on with it. You know, let's not focus on how we look and how society wants us to look. And, you know, this also kind of made me think, why does gender even really matter? Why should it matter? And so it really, in today's world, I guess it really matters when we want to reproduce. But that may not always be the case because there was a slew of articles that came out in 2015 about some work that was being done with stem cell research, where in the probably not so distant future, we may be able to use stem cells from a same-sex couple to change those stem cells into sperm and egg so that same-sex couples can actually use their own DNA to reproduce. Oh, wow. Obviously, there are ethical questions around doing that, which, Mm -hmm. you know, I think people probably feel like there are ethical questions around allowing someone to change their sex by taking artificial hormones. But, you know, if we can get there scientifically and offer it as an option, then does gender even really matter? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I I sort of thought about that same issue, but in reverse, I wondered how this is a naturally occurring phenomenon. And there are, you know, cultures that across time have recognized that there are people who are neither male nor female, Mm-hmm. Or are, a, you know, a little bit of both or somewhere on, you know, there are this whole binary, there's only men and there's women thing is obviously a social construct. So mm-hmm. I wondered if years and years ago, that social construct was born out of the idea that we need to be breeding. Yeah. We need to just be making babies and anything that does not right. help that situation is awful and needs to exactly. be condemned and yeah. ignored and what have you. And maybe now yeah, that we are, we, we're good on the breeding, guys. We got... <laughs> yeah, our, our species is probably overpopulated right now. <laughs> yeah, I think we're good. We can dial it down. And maybe that has opened up a space where there can be more acceptance of differences and people who aren't just cranking out children yeah. for all the years they're physically able to. However, I think on an individual <clears throat> level... It is still a struggle for individuals who do still want to have a child of their own. For example, I Mm -hmm. think the girl Ariel in the documentary, she was so sad that she would never be able to have children. And she said, I will have children, just not that way. But every time she talked about it, she cried. So at an individual level, I do feel like that's still a struggle. I guess it's just a deep biological feeling, you know, at an individual level. But, you know, each person has to outweigh the pros and the cons. You know, she also said, I don't want to even think about ever producing sperm. I just, Mm -hmm. she thought that was a horrible thought that was even more horrible than not ever having a child. Yeah. Yeah. And I recently heard an interview with the, I could, I wish I could remember which podcast it was on, but this was a woman who somewhere in her teens, I think, began to transition. And eventually the desire to have children sort of began to tug at her. And she, over the years, became aware that that desire to transition was for her, even in adulthood, just a phase oh. that she got through and got past. Right. And, and she you know, was happy to be a woman again. And she was telling this story very honestly and from her heart, but she felt pressure not to share it with a lot of people because it was interpreted as being transphobic. 
that if it's possible for this one woman to have experienced Mm -hmm. transitioning and then regretting transitioning, that you're saying somehow that all transitioning is a mistake. And that's not at all what she was saying. She just obviously represents one of those people for whom it is just a phase. That does happen. And it's terrible that she felt like she couldn't share her story or she had to look over her shoulder while sharing her story because it would be perceived as something more than just her own truth as some sort of agenda that it wasn't. That is terrible because I think the more diverse stories kids and parents can hear at this point, the better informed their decision can be. Right. And you just have to be careful not to use one person's story as a blanket situation that applies to all of them. Definitely. Um, Definitely. Because she absolutely could have been one of the people, Laverne Cox, one of these people who transitioned and is 100% glad they did. Right. You just don't know. And unless people feel comfortable telling their story freely and honestly, the research is not going to be accurate. Exactly. Yeah. And that is what everybody agrees we need more of is research and understanding of it. Yeah, I think the good thing about where we are right now is that people are starting to collect data and they are starting to collect numbers where mm-hmm. we haven't had those in the past. And they are starting to track people over time. I would love to see a follow up to this kind of a where are they now in the future if any of the participants were open to that. But I think that would be interesting um, as they get older to hear their stories and where they end up. Another thing that I think Ariel said was that it's harder teasing and bullying wise when you're a girly boy, when you're in that in-between stage than when you fully transitioned. It's much harder to be gender non-conforming than to be transgender because when you're gender non-conforming, that is when a lot of difficulties set in. That's so true. Someone was talking about tomboys in this earlier, and or you were talking about your friend whose daughter didn't want to conform to the girly stuff she saw around her. That is something that we've you know, really done a great job of celebrating more as time has gone by, but there has never been a similar acceptance for boys who like girly things. Right. I feel like it's better than it used to be, but there's definitely, Mm -hmm. they're definitely Mm -hmm. in two different places. Um, Yeah. And when you do look at the numbers that we have right now, overall, the ratio of male to female transitioning is three to one. Wow. There's no real hard data to support why that's the case. Some people Mm -hmm. feel like it's easier for a female to live as a male and dress as a male and not have to go through the surgery and that sort of thing um, so that they feel like the numbers don't truly represent the ratio because of that Right. versus a male. If you're really hairy and you don't want to be that way and you don't want to look muscular and you do want to develop natural breasts, you would go through hormones and surgery. Right. But I found that to be interesting. You're right, though. I think society probably tends to be harder on males Mm -hmm. who like girly things or dress as female. Right. The gender nonconforming thing seems to me to include not just girls who act like boys and boys who act like girls, but people who you just can't quite figure out. And do you remember on Saturday Night Live years ago, there was a comedy sketch about Pat? Yes, I do. It was one of my favorites. Julia Sweeney played Pat and (laughs) Pat was just this kind of like androgynous, androgynous (laughs) character that 
and the comedy around it was that everybody Pat encountered at work <laughs> or on the street or in the store was constantly trying to figure out, is this a man or a woman? And right. do I say he or she? And and then to con- totally confuse things, Pat was in a relationship with Chris, who not sure about that one either. And so it's interesting that we're a lot likelier to see Pat now right. than we were then. And around that same time, I was in college and I was in a gender studies class. And one of the things that I remember most about that class I think it was women's studies at the Mm -hmm. time. I think they later changed to gender studies. But one of the things that I remember most about that class is watching an episode of Sally Jesse Raphael that featured a guest named Toby. Oh. Did did you ever see this? No, I don't think so. So Toby was a – described himself or herself. I don't even remember what the pronouns involved were. But Toby described him or herself as a neuter, genderless person. And so this entire talk show was Toby talking to Sally Jesse Raphael about like, here are the things I like to do. Here are the things I like to wear here. are the, And we'll have to put the video up on Facebook so that people can see it really yeah. is a puzzle. Like from uh-huh. moment to moment, you're not sure. It's a very pet like situation. Really? But what struck me most about it and what we discussed at length in that class is how irrationally indignant the audience was that they couldn't figure this out as if it mattered as <laughs> exactly if it mattered, you know it's what an affront now in 2017 that it matters less now than it did even then but the whole thing was just crazy because people were just like oh what are you yeah it made them crazy that they didn't know and they were constantly fishing for clues and we're really irate about this Toby person's total comfort in being neither or both or you figure mm-hmm, it out. Mm-hmm. But I feel like there's more of that now. And it's more like, all right, just tell me what you want to be called. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, in addition to noticing that these families it just seemed to be mostly upper middle class, they seemed to live in places. I'm not sure where all of them lived, but they seemed to live in places or have the ability to move to places where this was more accepted. Yes. Or even if the transgender idea wasn't accepted, they were able to move from point A to point B while the child was transitioning. So it was, they were never transitioning in one class or in one school where people would have all kinds of questions and suspicions and things. But I guess there's, you know, even paperwork stuff involved with, if you've got a birth certificate that says one thing, and Mm -hmm. I I just don't know how easy that is to do outside of like Berkeley, California. (laughs) You know, I feel like there are places in the world where that is like no big deal at all. Mm -hmm. And for most of the rest of the country, it would cause a lot of head scratching at least. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's one of those things that I wondered how we would deal with it here. I mean, I just don't know how... Yeah. If the families themselves are having that much trouble wrestling with the whole option and the newness of it, mm-hmm. then how does the neighborhood and the school community and the community at large yes. react? I am sure the child that I know who's now living is a male uh, and has mm-hmm. been for a couple of years now and has remained in the same school in a smaller town, I'm sure has had struggles. And he's now a black belt and has a very good support system, I know, at least in that community. But I do wonder if he's really struggled in school and how his peers have reacted. Because the town that he's in is, in some ways, pretty progressive, but in some ways is not. So I don't know. I hope it hasn't been too difficult for him in school. Sometimes 
younger children are more accepting than teenage children. So in that respect, it may not have been that difficult for him. Yeah. I think young children are a lot cooler about a lot of things (laughs) than their grown-up counterparts are. They seem to have a much more unfazed attitude about everything from disability to race to all kinds of stuff. So it makes sense that they would just roll with something like this. Right. Um, You know, whenever I see arguments or little jabs about this, Sometimes I do have several friends on Facebook who are teachers, and I remember one recently that made a comment about she had to teach gym one day, and she told the girls to go play basketball on one side of the court and boys to play on the other side of the court. And a boy was playing on the girl's side, and she called him over and said, why are you playing on the girl's side? And he said, I'm trans. And this was the first she had ever heard of it. And so was she, she serious or was he just trying to be funny? She said he was trying to be serious. And so she made him sit down with her instead of playing. And he asked why. Mm. And she said, because I haven't heard anything about this. I don't think you really belong on the girl side. And if you want to play, you're going to have to play on the, the boy's side. And so he did. He got up and played on the boy's side because he would rather play than argue about this. So I think when people make little snide comments about kids transitioning, they're using those types of examples where the child is just kind of testing the waters to see if they can Mm -hmm. use it to their benefit and not really serious about transitioning. And of course, there are going to be situations like that. I mean, we're talking about kids who are testing the waters in every respect and testing adults in every respect to see how they can benefit from it. Right. So I think having this documentary in situations like that is completely different than somebody who just wants to play mm-hmm. on the girls team, you know, for, for one gym well, class. Well, and of course, children are <laughs> going to try to test the, push the envelope with this because in the national discussion, we have respected lawmakers arguing that if you make bathrooms available to people to, you know, to use according to the gender they identify with, Mm-hmm. that, oh, you're going to open the ladies' room up to all kinds of rapists and horrible people. <laughs> well, one, if you think that pedophiles are lurking around bathrooms to attack people, then why are you okay with them in the men's room? Yeah. And B, it's sort of when that conversation trickles down to children, I could see them saying, oh, okay, so this is something I could – This is something I could use to just go hang out in the girls' locker room if I want to. Or I I could see how children would get the idea that this is, you know, fresh. What's the word I'm looking for? That this is a a nice opportunity for trickery, you know, and to to get over in some way or another. Which is a shame. I just, it it makes my blood boil whenever I hear, uh, you know, the whole bathroom thing being turned Mm -hmm. into oh, well, now the men are just going to put on a dress, you know, like Clinger from MASH and go in and, (laughs) you know, wreak all kinds of havoc with our our wives and daughters. And that's just not it at all. And then when you show them a picture of who's the Buck Angel is the – I don't even know how to describe Buck Angel. He's like a – I know he does porn, so (laughs) stars in there. But so much more than that. There's like activism and all kinds of stuff. And Buck Angel was born female. And from the waist up, Buck Angel is this ripped, tattooed, like biker looking dude, you know, mm-hmm. goatee, bald head, the whole nine. From the waist down, 
Buck Angel has not had any surgery. So Buck Angel has lady parts down okay. south. Yeah. And so when you show people who say that a picture of Buck Angel and you say what you're saying is that this person should be in the ladies room with your daughters. Yeah. Is that is that what you really want? Yeah. And then you show them a picture of a woman who has not had bottom surgery and saying, this is who you want next to you at the urinal. Is that what right. you're telling me? I think people just haven't given it any thought. They just think transgender means a dude in a dress or a chick who wears baggy clothes. Yeah. And there's yeah. so much more to it than that. Yeah. And, you know, we aren't talking about huge numbers as far as the numbers that we do have. I do feel like the national discussion has died down a little bit around this. Although I did see in the news that Texas is now discussing yep. a potential law for their schools. It's really complicated. Like you said, these are kids who are, you know, some are going to say, well, it's convenient for me today to go to the, the girls' bathroom. Yeah. And, and what are their motives? Right, yeah. right. Because and how do you differentiate? And say, all right, Bobby, if you're going into the ladies' room, that means you identify as female. So yeah. I need you to explain to me in what ways you want me from now on in class to refer to you as she. Yeah. Do you from now on in class you're going to be? What's your new name? You know. Right. <laughs> like, right. And have you been going? They don't to understand a counselor? that identity is more than just saying I feel like going into that bathroom today. Yeah. It's, exactly. Although I personally, anytime I go to a concert, we'd love to identify as a male just whenever I need to go to the bathroom I you know, know. <laughs> that is always so unfair <laughs> although there's that joke about if you're a girl and you go to a rush concert you never have to wait in line <laughs> but the numbers that I was able to find at least there was a paper published by the census bureau and they published some data according to the 2010 census what they were using as a data point was people who had changed their names from either feminine to masculine or the other way around. And that was 89,667 people had changed their names from one gender to another. And then 21,833 of those had also changed their sex as far as mm. on the questionnaire itself from one census to another. Then there was also a paper published in 2011 by the Williams Institute, and it used survey data to attempt to count the transgender population. It estimated that 0.3% of the population, or 700,000 adults, identified that way. Uh, 0.3%, we're not talking about a huge population. And then right. as far as the teenagers, 13 to 17-year-olds, the Williams Institute of the University of California, Los Angeles, Let's see, this was in 2017, so this is more recent data, and this is teenagers only. The Williams Institute estimates about 0.7% of 13 to 7-year-olds living in the U.S. identify as transgender, and that works out to be about 150,000 teenagers. So again, it's not a huge population. Mm-hmm. So the furor around it has just been completely disproportionate to what to who it even affects. Yeah, you know, the energy like that... <laughs> yeah, I know, the energy people have expended debating these things could have been better spent dealing with each individual as the topic came mm -hmm. up. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if we're only talking about one person in a school, why can't that be dealt with individually and determined on an individual basis? 
you know, instead of making a blanket statement of, okay, all schools in our school district, you know, this is going to be the policy now just because Mm -hmm. one person has brought it up as a topic. Yeah, that's an interesting point in a lot of ways that I think a lot of schools and institutions like to be able to scramble around and point to policy on something. And if they don't have a policy for it, then they don't, well, don't know what to do. Yeah. But you're right. One transgender kid across four years in a high school, that's not really, that could just be dealt with on an individual basis. Like, yeah. (laughs) Have a school meeting and talk about this and then we're done. Yeah. Work with the parents, work with the counselor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The other thing that I thought came across in the documentary with the parents is it almost seemed like they had to mourn letting go of their old child as part of the process of accepting their new child. Yeah. And that makes total sense because you've raised this being from the time they were born. And you, and we all, even as parents, we have preconceived notions of, okay, I have a daughter and what that means, you know? Well, a parenthood in general, even if their gender and sexuality don't come as a surprise to you as they grow, parenthood in general is just a series of saying goodbye to the child, you know, you know, I mean, like you start off with this wriggly newborn and that doesn't last long. And then you get this laughing, smiling baby, and then that's gone. And and you get, and you know, every few months or few years, you're meeting a whole different person, but you're saying goodbye to the person that came before them. So that's a good point. I hadn't thought of it that way. I guess in a lot of respects, we do mourn each stage of our child's birth. But it is different when it's their very identity that you're having to change. And the name that you chose. You yeah, put a lot of thought into. Oh my gosh, name. you spend so much time agonizing over a name, and then <laughs> and then they want to change it. Yeah, well, at least Liam just dropped the M. That was easy. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> became Leah. They didn't even have to really get rid of too many personalized items that way. <laughs> yeah, I would really love a "Where are they now?" follow up in a few years. Yeah, I wish there was some sort of um, update just on. Frontline's website, although I'm sure there are privacy issues, although if they had participated in the documentary to begin with, they may be more open to providing updates, which I would love to hear their stories as they grow older. Yeah. What year was this? 2015. 2015. So just a couple years old. Yeah. So yeah. Um, But gosh, two years is a lot when you're talking puberty. Yeah. (laughs) They'd be totally different people now. Yeah. Just going from 14 Um, to 16. That's a huge change. Yeah. So I was really struck by how self-assured and confident a lot of these kids were. Yeah, especially Ariel. Yeah, I thought Ariel yes. was just so cute and bubbly. She was just all together with it, just knew exactly what she wanted. And so she could be a motivational speaker. <laughs> she I was agree. so great. And I don't remember being that certain about anything when I was that age, especially something so controversial and unheard of, you know, with the people around me. Yeah. I just really admired these kids a lot. Right. Um, Yeah. And the thing that was so cute about Leah in the beginning saying she changed her name, she changed her clothes, she changed her room, her pronouns. I thought... I, for some reason, the room stuck out to me so much. Maybe because she was in her room when she was saying it. Yeah. I just remember being at, at an age where I felt like what was on my walls was like of utmost importance because it right. expressed who I was. Yeah, that was your personal <laughs> you know? space. And totally. Having, yeah, having your little personal space decorated just so. Um, yeah. I remember that being a very big deal. Yeah. 
So that, of course, if you're a kid, that would be central to if you're changing your identity in any respect. Oh, we got to get this stuff off the walls and right, <laughs> that bedspread's right. got to go. Yeah, well, I think it's an important documentary. I'm glad that it's out there and I'm glad that it's available for viewing even a couple yeah. of years after it's originally aired because I feel like it's, it's still an important topic. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it really honestly tackles the pros and cons of it. I um, went into it thinking it might just be a whole bunch of families saying, this is my daughter and she transitioned and everything's hunky-dory. But I feel like it was really honest with the medical professionals weighing in and the parents who were not at all <laughs> on oh, board, at, yeah. at least first. Um, I felt like it was very even handed. And so I'm, I'm happy to recommend this documentary to people who aren't familiar mm-hmm. with this whole phenomenon and maybe want to learn more about it. That yeah. second part is harder to find people who want to learn more about it. I feel like there are a lot of people who just like immediately close their minds to it and that's it. It's weird and I don't believe yeah. in it and moving on. <laughs> that's a good point. I feel like in a lot of documentaries about social issues. It's hard to get people to watch a documentary that they're not at least open to the ideas around it. Yeah. Now, every time I watch a documentary film, I always try to think about, you know, what's the motivation here for the filmmaker? Why are they making this documentary? Is it to entertain us? Is it to educate? Is it to provide an unbiased point of view? Is it just to explore ideas and not really provide a solution? You know, I try to think through those things because filmmakers do shape a narrative, even when they're trying not to. I think that's Mm -hmm. impossible not to do. Even in this documentary, just like you said, if someone is resistant to the idea, they're not going to watch it to begin with. So yeah, that's hard. There are a lot of documentaries I think I'm resistant to watching. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm guilty of it too. Me too. I'll start a documentary sometimes just being curious about the subject. And then I'm like, "Eh, I'm just not into it. I'm not open to this, so I stop watching it. And shame on me because it might just provide me with another person's point of view, whether I disagree with it or not. Mm -hmm. There's actually another episode of... Frontline, where a black man goes around kind of befriending people from the Klan, which is like the craziest premise in the world. But the idea for him is for them to sit down and talk to him and get to know him personally. And eventually, many of them do begin to soften and sort of shun the Klan and denounce their original views on race and consider him a brother to them. Like they become really, really good friends. And he has amassed a collection of hoods and robes from people he has befriended and talked out of being in the Klan. Wow. Which is an amazing premise and really speaks to my belief that so many of our problems could be avoided by people just personally connecting with someone who's different from them. I am but at the same time, just watching a few minutes of that documentary made me want to reach through the screen and punch people. And I, yeah. I couldn't take it. And yeah. I, I will probably go back to it once I'm in a better frame of mind. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because it obviously has some upsides to it if he's able to convince that many people. Yeah. But it's the process of it that I'm just, it makes me ragey. And yeah. I don't, even though I know it's, effective and it obviously works in his case the idea of engaging with a clan member just is nope don't want to Mm -hmm. and there was an episode of another podcast recently where oh his name escapes me now but a black man who hosts kind of a political show sat down with Richard Spencer that 
horrible human being who uh, was kind of the leader of the alt-right movement. Yeah. And just in the first few minutes of this podcast, when he's interviewing this guy, you hear him ask Richard Spencer, so what do you think about, uh, I don't know, he just raises some general question about race. Oh, what do you think about white uh, privilege? And Richard Spencer (laughs) is like, I'm all for it. We need more of it. And this guy laughs like they're just buddies having a beer. And I was like, nope, can't listen to the rest of this. Can't do it. Which is dumb because if that guy can subject himself to being there in person with him, why can't I just listen to what they said? Yeah. Couldn't do it. (laughs) Hmm. Interesting. So anyway, all that to say, I'm guilty of it too. When I've decided I don't have an open mind toward a certain topic or group, I am just as guilty of just shutting off to it. Yeah. Well, at least they're out there for us to go back to. Right. right. (laughs) When we're in a better frame of mind. You know, I mean, this documentary is out there and there could be people, parents especially, who are out there who are very resistant to the idea right now, but maybe their children will approach them at some point with concerns. And so this documentary is one resource that's available for those families. Yeah, that's true. It's there when you need it. And if your children (laughs) suddenly make it an issue in your household and not Mm -hmm. just something you see on the news, then um, it's a good documentary to watch to get yourself kind of familiar with what it is. Or a family that you know may be going through this and you want better Mm -hmm. insight to it without prying into their lives. Yeah. All right. That's all I had for this one. Same here. Yeah. So what is your high note this week? My high note is the unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt is back (laughs) on Netflix. And I am just so delighted by that show. It's just full of surprises. And the lead character, the actress who plays the lead character is just as charming as can be. (laughs) Um, The jokes are just nonstop. And they range from, you know, ridiculous puns to really (laughs) things that you don't get until a few seconds later. Everyone on that show is just remarkable. And there's, I think, 13 episodes in this season, which is Mm -hmm. a nice surprise. I feel like we'd gotten used to a lot of shows that had six or eight episodes and they were done. And this one has a full 13. So we're not even halfway through watching them. And that's just a delight. I'll still be so sad when the last episode rolls around. (laughs) Good. Yeah. (laughs) I am a little embarrassed to say I haven't even watched the first season. My husband watched it and enjoyed it, but I just never did get around to watching it. So I do need to catch up on that at some point. There's just so much good TV. Yeah. My high note is I wasn't really in search of this, but stumbled upon some really good water-based nail polish and (laughs) I never really thought about if you've ever painted your nails you're familiar with the fumes that regular nail polish Mm. gives off and Mm -hmm. it's just there it's just part of the whole process I never had given it any thought whatsoever and then someone one of my Facebook friends actually shared an article about how employees of nail salons their health is in danger because of all the fumes. And mm. so as part of that article, it also listed that there are water-based solutions that are available that are actually pretty good as far as mm. color and durability. And I don't paint my nails a lot. I mean, you can see my fingernails, nothing. They're just <laughs> fingernails. But, you know, in the summer, I do try to paint my toenails just you know, yeah. for everyone else's sake. <laughs> and so I decided to order a bottle and give it a try. The brand that I tried is called Aquarella. And I ordered two colors. I've only tried one so far. It's a little bit different because you do have to prep your nails. And so you get everything that you need 
shipped with the nail polish. I ordered mine on Amazon. So it comes with two buffers and it comes with instructions on how to use those. So you do have to buff your nails. You have to clean them first, you know, remove any old polish and then buff them in a specific order using these buffers. But that took me all of, you know, less than five minutes to do. And then you just wash your toenails off and then apply two thin coats. And I didn't expect it to last, to be honest. I figured it would, you know, come off in a day or two. But mm-hmm. I painted my nails a month ago now, and it's still on there. And I have applied wow. one more coat because it's like, you know, how regular nail polish flakes off. And mm-hmm. this more rubs off, I've seen. And I mean, obviously, mm-hmm. you're getting a lot of rub on your toenails with shoes and socks and yeah. walking. So I did have a couple of little areas where it had rubbed off. So I just put another coat on and mm-hmm. it's still there and it still looks pretty good, I think. And Aquarella was the name? Aquarella. And I didn't need a base coat. I didn't need a top coat. So the initial price is more than I think most people would normally pay for nail polish. A bottle was eighteen ninety nine, But you don't need the top <laughs> coat. You don't need the base coat. And it comes with everything you need as far as the little buffers and instructions. So the way I look at it, too, I'm not getting that toxicity. You know, I'm not getting any sort of chemical leaching into my skin or inhaling any of the fumes. I was shocked at how much better it smells, you know, when you're putting it on. Mm -hmm. And apparently there are five main chemicals in nail polish that we're supposed to try to avoid. And this doesn't have any of those five so hmm. I've been really happy with it. I got to say, I'm going to stick with it from now on for my summer toes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, good to know if it has that kind of staying power. I can imagine why nail salons haven't been falling all over themselves to stock it, though, because yeah. even though the fumes would be more pleasant for them, they would lose some repeat business. I that. know. Well, the only thing that I haven't tried to do is remove it. And they do make a different type of nail polish remover their own brand Mm -hmm. because the apparently the -the over-the-counter stuff that we all use for regular nail polish won't work on this because it's different chemical makeup i did read a review on amazon that said regular alcohol rubbing alcohol on a cotton ball works just as well as the aquarella brand remover so i may try Hmm. that but i haven't tried removing it yet i may try to do that and then try to I ordered a pink color as well. Right now I'm wearing blue. <laughs> so <laughs> I haven't tried the pink yet. The blue has stayed on really well. I've been really surprised. Huh. Just as well, if not better, than the regular nail polish that I've used before. So yeah, hmm. highly recommended if you're in the market for water-based <laughs> nail polish, <laughs> which I didn't even know I <laughs> <Very> was. Cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but awesome. that's it for me. I think that's a wrap for this week. Yeah, yes. that's all I've got for this week. We've got some more good ones coming up soon, though. Oh, The Keepers is coming up. I'm so excited. Yeah, to talk you've about already that. started that, right? Yeah, I'm almost done with it, but I may need to watch it again. I don't know. It's been really good. And if you start watching it, they will mention a Facebook group that they have had active for some time now prior to the filming. Mm. And Due to the popularity of the show, they have had to close that page and just restrict the the membership there. But they have opened up a new Facebook page, which has turned into, I don't want to talk about it too much, but it's turned into (laughs) 
a web sleuth group, basically crowdsourcing investigative type of group around this documentary series. So it's really interesting. So much about the series is interesting. I think there's just a lot to talk about. And I'm really excited about that. So yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that's it for this one. All right. Well, thank you for listening and be sure to join us on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash documentaries or send us an email at documentaries at (laughs) gmail.com. See you next week. Bye. Bye.